We have plenty of reason to sing and be happy. So much that's going on that's good and encouraging. We don't forget to remind ourselves that we are about or at the cusp of breaking ground on our new facilities and we're thankful to God for the opportunities that we know that that will bring. One of the elders took a picture of the credenza in the secretary's office and there's no available surface space there. It's filled with baptismal certificates and Bibles from the folks that have obeyed the gospel recently. And so more cause for thanksgiving and gratitude to God. And about a month from now, it's actually just shy, four weeks from today will be the end of our seminar. And by the way, please mark this, September 10th, it's our friend and family day. Be uh, thinking of who you'll invite and let's Let's pack the building with our friends and family as they have an opportunity to hear one of our most effective gospel preachers among us, David Sproul, who will be with us that weekend for a seminar. There are brochures, flyers on the Welcome Center right by the door in the multipurpose room. Please pick up some to uh, give to others. Friday night will be in Saturday morning, so it's a little bit different from what we've done. It will be a congregational seminar. And that'll be what we uh, focus as areas that we need that will help us to be a stronger church as we seek to grow and continue to grow. So please be making that note on your calendar Friday night for about an hour and a half, Saturday morning for two or three hours, and then at lunchtime you'll be free for the day, and then we'll come back together with hopefully so many of our friends and family on Sunday. We realize that with all the joy that's going on that we are not negligent to be mindful of and to reach out to our brothers and sisters who have been through the grief of loss. Um, So often it seems to be this way that we don't lose one, but we lose three or four at a time, and that's certainly been this week. It may have been that a few of you have been to a funeral that is related to this congregation on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We said goodbye to our Janetta Lawrence, one of the longtime members of this congregation, And what a legacy she left. And uh, our thoughts are certainly with Perry, but so many friends uh, that she had in this congregation. When we first moved here, she liked to joke around and say that she drove the old ladies around. I met her when she was 90, so that was how she was. But also we went and we uh, paid tribute to one of our newer Christians, actually grew up in a Christian home and obeyed the gospel very late in life. His dad used to be one of the song leaders here on a regular basis back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, Stacy Idson passed away before his 60th birthday. And so our thoughts are with Joan Romer, our sister in Christ, on the loss of her brother and ours. And then our thoughts are certainly with the Waddell and Adkins family as a great man of God, an elder in the church for over 50 years, was laid to rest yesterday for the J.C. Waddell. So let's in our thoughts of others as we're excited and moving forward. Don't forget those and a great many who are struggling in different ways among us. And let's be a loving family to one another. It is said that in the Alps of Switzerland there's a unique spot. It is said that a man standing on that spot can stoop down and can pick up a wooden chip, can turn and face a certain direction and toss that chip and it will fall down into a river below And that river will carry it thousands of miles away to a distant sea. It's said that that same man standing in that same spot can stoop down and pick up yet another wooden chip, 
Turn and face a different direction and toss it and it will fall down into yet another river that will carry it thousands of miles away to another distant sea. If what is said about that spot in the Alps of Switzerland is true, it very vividly illustrates a great Bible truth. That is that decision making determines destiny. Even as that individual in that spot in the Alps of Switzerland is making a decision about the destination of that wooden chip, he is determining its destination even though its destination is thousands of miles away. You know, the Bible teaches two fundamental truths about decision making. First of all, it determines for us that decision making is mandatory. There are just some decisions that you're going to have to make. You're going to make decisions about God. You're going to make decisions about your character. You're going to make decisions about your eternal destiny. And somebody says, well, Neil, I decide not to decide. That's still a decision that's made. Decision-making is unavoidable. But second, decision-making is determinate. That is, the decisions that I make determine destiny. Not only do they determine how I live in this life, they determine where I will spend my eternity. I don't have to go to heaven. I can go to hell. I don't have to go to hell. I can go to heaven. But where I do go is determined by the decisions that I make in this life. Will I stand with God or will I stand against God? You know, throughout the Bible, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God establishes through His Word the fact that we were created with the ability to choose. And as we walk through some of the great characters of the Bible, from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end and on into the New Testament, we see that very fact. We think about Moses... And as we think about Moses at the end of his life in Deuteronomy, he stands before the people as he preaches a sermon to them. And he says, Behold, I called a record against you this day, heaven and earth, that I had set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Only choose life that both you and your seed may live. Moses was saying, you must choose. You must decide. But realize that your decision not only affects you, it affects your children who come after you. Moses fades off the scene and behind him comes the one that Derek read to us about a moment ago. As the the land of Canaan has been conquered, Joshua, the old man at the end of his journey, stands before the people. And he says this, he says, If it seems evil to you, choose this day whom you will serve whether it be the gods of your fathers on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, Joshua was indicating to us three very important truths about decision-making. Joshua was indicating to us that he could decide. He was telling us that he could decide that day. And he was showing us that he could decide that day about his master. And I suggest to you that those same three truths apply to this assembly this morning. You can decide. You can decide today. And you can decide today to make Jesus your Lord and Master and alter your eternal destiny. We move on down in Old Testament history and we come to one of the great non-literary prophets of the Old Testament, one of the great heroes of the Bible. And on, in, in 1 Kings chapter 18, you have Elijah up on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal. And he sets the whole thing into focus when he says, If the Lord be God, 
follow him. If Baal be God, follow him. What he was saying in that passage was, you need to weigh the, the evidence that's set in front of you and then decide what is right. Do you know what these Bible verses indicate to us? It indicates to us that we're not totally influenced by our environment. We're not totally under the control of our heredity, but we have the ability to choose for ourselves. But we move over into the note in the New Testament and we see Jesus in his ministry. And of all that Jesus said and all that he did, one of the most important words and concepts that he ever talked about was this ability that we had to choose. One of the most important words of Jesus was the word come. You might think of Matthew 11 and verse 28 when Jesus is teaching and he says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You ever thought about why Jesus used that word come? Our Lord said come because man can come. Jesus will never ask you to do anything that is beyond your ability to produce. More than you can do. Our Lord said come because we can come. But second, our Lord says, come to me because it is right to come to him. Jesus will never ask you to do anything that it's not right for you to do. If you're not a Christian, you ought to become one simply because it's right to do so. If you're not a faithful child of God, you should be restored to his fellowship and to come back to him simply because it's right. On one occasion, Jesus taught in John chapter 5 and verse 40, after he says, search the scriptures, he says, they will not come to me that they might have life. And so what Jesus is signifying is that because they would not come to him, they were going to spiritually die. At the very end of the Bible is our book we're studying on Sunday mornings, the book of Revelation. And Jesus is revealed to us in the book of Revelation as the master creator. Whenever Jesus wanted stars, he flung them across the trillions of miles of outer space. Whenever our Lord wanted water, he covered three-fourths of the earth with it. And whenever our Lord wanted cattle, he dotted a thousand hills with them. But in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus is revealed to us as the master creator. He is the perfect gentleman as he stands before the door of our hearts. This one who created all things stands politely at the door of your heart and mine. And he says in Revelation 3 and verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Jesus has the power to break down the door of our hearts and yet we see him standing there asking and waiting for our entrance. Now here's the situation as Jesus reveals it to us. As he stands there, he says, the way the matter is now, you are the host and I'm the guest. He says, but let me in and I'll turn the tables on you and I'll be the host and you be the guest. In Revelation chapter 22, in the very last chapter of the Bible, we see a warning and an invitation, a warning not to add to or take away from his word, but associated with that there is a great invitation. He says, and the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him that hears say, come. Whoever will, let him come and drink of the water of life freely. And so literally from the first Bible writer, Moses, to the last Bible writer, John, we have a consistent message. When God made you, God gave you the power of choice to do what it is that you choose and want to do. But you know, there's another side to this important subject. 
as it is with a great many of the Bible's important subjects, there's a dichotomy, there's another side. Along with the free moral agency with which God created us, there is the sovereign choice of God. And because of this, there are some things that we'll not be able to choose. Even though we can make decisions about God and about our character and about our eternal destiny, the Bible reveals that there are some things that we cannot choose. You are a free moral agent, but you cannot decide to live. That decision has been made. You're alive. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, Jesus says, Do not fear him who is able to destroy the body, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And in Matthew 16 and verse 26, Jesus says, For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Men can destroy your body, but they cannot destroy you. You can't say to your parents, I don't want to live. You can't say to God, don't bring me into existence. I don't want to live. You are alive. You are made in the image of God and you're going to live as long as God lives. 10,000 years from this morning, you'll be alive. 100,000 years from right now, you'll be alive. You're going to live as long as God lives. Whenever God made you, He put a spark of Himself inside of you. You know, several years ago, there was a young man in the state of California that was overcome with a lot of the problems of his life and he decided, tragically, to take his own life. And they found a simple little note next to his body. And that note simply read, I did not find life worth living, so I decided to end it all. I don't know all the variables in that young man's life, but it seems to me that he made at least two tragic mistakes. First of all, he said, I did not find life worth living. You don't always find life worth living. You can make life worth living through the abundant life. But that's the way that we have to look at life. It's not always going to be the way we want it to be. But second, he said, I decided to end it all. You can't end it all. You can destroy this body of clay. And you can bring to an end your pilgrimage on this earth, but you're engineered for eternity. Even though you can't decide to live, you can decide to live for God. Even though that's a decision outside of your realm, you can decide whether or not you're going to serve Him. You are a free moral agent, but you cannot choose to live. Second, you are a free moral agent, but you cannot choose the true and the living God. You cannot decide who will be God. You know, Moses wrote the 90th Psalm and he paints this enormous picture of God in Psalm 90 and verse 2. And he said, before you had ever made the mountains or ever you had formed the earth and the worlds, even from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, Paul says, there is one God. And he says it this way in Ephesians 4 and verse 5. He says, there's one God and Father of all who is above all, who is through all, and who is in you all. That's the truth. And I must accept that or forever beat myself against it. You know, someone has said that any person who does not believe in the existence of God and who has not surrendered his life to the will of God has started from no beginning place and is working toward no ending place. A person like that may live and may eat and drink and sleep and work and play and have a family. But they've got to have time. If tomorrow never comes, they've lost everything. 
Someone who lives life believing that there is no God is one like one who gets on a merry-go-round. You get on at a certain point, you go round and round, and there's lots of motion, there's lots of activity, but you get off at the same place where you got on. You've made no progress. Life without God is a life without progress. God is, whether or not we admit it, whether we ignore it, or whether we recognize it and surrender our will to God and we obey Him, I have the ability to choose, but I cannot choose the true and living God. I am a free moral agent. I have the right to choose, but I cannot choose what the Word of God says to man. You know, the Bible gives us a clear statement about its position on the Bible. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, Paul tells Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good word. And in that every good work we see in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we understand that God has revealed to us the way that he wants us to live through his inspired writers. I can decide what I'm going to do with that word, but I cannot change what the word of God says. Whenever I go to the Bible, I must let it tell me what I'm going to think and what I'm going to believe and how I'm going to live. For example, let's think about a couple of passages. In John chapter 8 and verse 24, Jesus is teaching on that occasion. And he says, unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Now there are hundreds of passages on faith in the Bible We don't have to read each and every one of them to come to the conviction that we must believe. Jesus says that without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of all those that diligently seek him. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Another passage is Acts 17 and verse 30. Paul is teaching people up on Mars Hill who are not even sure they believe in the God of the Bible. And he says, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why a steady study of repentance, the idea of changing our mind that leads to a change of behavior is firmly taught in this passage and a great many others. In Romans 10 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul is talking about the great blessings of the gospel. And in Romans 10 and verse 10 he says, And with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In plain language, we have the inspired writer Paul telling us what's a part of God's saving plan. And then there's Acts 22 and verse 16. In that particular passage, Saul comes, is confronted by Ananias, the preacher, who comes to him and says, And now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. Anyone who is accountable can read and study and hear the language of that verse. and can understand what it is that Scripture is saying. I can't change that plan, but that plan will change me. Once there was a woman in an assembly where the preacher was preaching on the subject of baptism and its essential nature and she didn't like it. After services she wanted to go out and didn't want to to say anything to the preacher but unlike here there was only one exit between her and the door and so she felt like she had to say something to him. And so she said, Mister, did you get that out of the Bible? He said, No ma'am, it's in there today. You can't get it out of the Bible. Whatever God says, stay said. You can't make God say something that he didn't say. Whatever God sets up, we can't set down. Whatever God sets down, we can't set up. I can decide what I will do with the word of God, but I cannot decide what the word and the will of God says to man. 
I have the ability to choose, but I cannot choose the consequences of my sin. I know that every sin has consequences. The Bible makes that clear in both Testaments. Uh, Israel is told this when Hosea the prophet comes in Hosea 8 and verse 7, and he says that Israel had sown to the wind and they had reaped a whirlwind. Solomon said, Can a man walk upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? Can he take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? In the New Testament, Paul says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He that sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. You know, I can't always see the consequences of my sins when I do them. I can stop assembling. I can cease being faithful, and it may not show up until years later in children and loved ones that have fallen away from the Lord. I can choose to sin or I can choose not to sin. But I cannot choose the consequences of my sin. I have the ability to choose, but I cannot choose the time of the coming of Christ or the hour of judgment. I know that my Lord is coming. I just don't know when. You know, in the Bible, it is depicted for us as a picture of a thief coming in the night. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2, it is a picture of swiftness and suddenness. You know, and as I study and see that I know that my Lord is coming, I don't know when, it says Jesus described in Mark 13, verse 32 and 33, when He says, But of that day and that hour knows no man, not the angels or the Son, but the Father only. And with that picture, that He's going to come swiftly and suddenly, I have an understanding that in a world in which information is accessible immediately, where artificial intelligence is doing, it seems, things quicker and better than we do. By the way, I saw that for the first time in motion where a man made one statement and AI made this big three-paragraph post. It's amazing how quick technology has developed to where it is, but there will be no advance warning, no insight before our Lord comes. There's not going to be a crawler or a trailer on your favorite news source saying that our Lord is coming later today. He'll surprise everybody. He'll surprise the media people. He'll surprise most of us. We know our Lord is coming. We just don't think that He'll come now. We've got our lives planned. We've got our years planned. We live life by the clock and the calendar and the schedule. We don't think that our Lord will come now, but He'll come, and He'll come swiftly and suddenly. You know, just a couple of years ago, we remember all too well the events that happened with the tornado that struck here. But there was a, a tornado on a Wednesday night in oil trough, Arkansas, some years ago. The saints had met together and had had Bible class, and there had been a devotional talk, and they had just gotten up to sing the invitation song, Trust and Obey. And the song leader had gotten two or three words into the song when all of a sudden a tornado ripped through that building and strewn the debris across the countryside. Nobody was hurt seriously. But they were interviewing one of the ladies that was present there that night and they asked her, what did you think in that moment when you thought that your life was in danger? She said, I didn't have time to think. It happened that quickly. And as I heard that, I thought, that's how it's going to be when my Lord comes. He'll come swiftly. He'll come suddenly. 
You know, our Lord is not going to reach down into our ear and whisper, will it be all right with you if I bring the world to an end? Will it inconvenience you? No, he says you get ready and you stay ready because you don't know when I'm going to come. Our Lord one day is going to pull the plug on the clock of time and we're going to go out into eternity. And whatever we're doing at that moment, we're going to stop doing it. If you're working, you're going to stop. If you're eating a sandwich, you're going to stop. If you're playing golf, whatever you're doing, you're going to stop. I have the ability to choose, but I cannot choose the time of the coming of Christ or the judgment of God. I have the ability to choose, but I cannot choose the length of eternity. How is it that we can impress upon ourselves this idea that we are going to a place from which we will never return. You know, there have been a lot of different depictions, and I don't know what the best one is, and they're all accommodative at best because it's trying to impress on our minds that live life by time, a concept that has no time attached to it. Eternity is the antithesis of time. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, John says that the wicked will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The word there, aeonon, simply means forever. But the translators are trying to give us some idea of the breadth and the depth of that word. And so they add those words, and ever. How long is eternity? I heard the late Wendell Winkler give this particular illustration, and maybe you can find one better. But he said, I want you to imagine a steel ball the size of the earth. And I want you to imagine an ant specifically engineered for this task. An ant that has the endurance of life enough to walk around that steel ball one time. How long would that take? How long would it take that ant to circumnavigate that steel ball the size of the earth enough times to wear a path in that steel ball? How long until he had worn a one-inch groove? How long until it was a foot? Until he had gone through it sufficient number of times that that steel ball was cut in two? Understanding eternity from the Bible. Eternity after that point will have just begun. The one purpose I have in this life is to make preparation for eternity. And nothing must interfere with my making proper preparation for it. I'm not a pilgrim of this earth trying to make my way to heaven. I'm a pilgrim of heaven trying to make my way through this earth. You know, if you are have a headache, you can take an aspirin. If you have a flat tire, you can fix it. If you have the flu, you can go to the, to the doctor. But if you die lost, it's a forever mistake. I'm a free moral agent, but I cannot choose the length of eternity. I have the ability to choose, but I cannot choose the bliss of heaven or the horror of hell. If a man wants to be unpopular today, let him preach on the subject of hell. Somebody says... I don't want to hear about hell. I want to hear about Jesus. But just about everything I know on the subject of hell, I read about from Jesus. The word Gehenna is found 11 times, and almost every time it comes off the lips of Jesus. Jesus teaches us about the vastness of hell. It's a lake of fire. He teaches us about the confinement of hell. It's a furnace of fire. He teaches us about the overwhelming nature of hell. It's a baptism of fire. And he teaches us about the horror of hell. It's a place of weeping and gnashing. And it is a place of outer darkness and no hope. In America, hell is a joke. 
But in the Bible, hell is a reality for all those who reject His will and rebel against His word. I can't choose the bliss of heaven. Heaven is going to be more beautiful and more wonderful than we can imagine. It's going to be more beautiful than the songs that we write to sing about it, more beautiful than the words that we use to describe it. Thank God for the no mores of Revelation. No more night, no more death, no more sea, no more sin, no more Satan. There's going to be no more hospitals. You don't die anymore. We will forever spend our eternity in the presence of God, basking in and drinking in His glory as we share that eternal bliss with the the saints and the Godhead, as we enjoy what God has provided that's infinitely better than this place. You know, we have PowerPoint, and obviously, especially my PowerPoints are not very high-tech or very technical, very beautiful and very descriptive. But suppose we had the ability this morning to create two pictures One out of each door that you see in front of you. What if we could open up and God gave us the ability to open that door for just a minute or two and you could all see inside and there God could give us a picture of hell as it is. If we could see, I don't believe we would ever need another sermon, at least for this audience, on hell again. And if we could open those doors and we could get a genuine look of heaven as it will be without any of the limitations of our comprehension and we could look into that realm for just a couple of minutes, maybe we would never have to preach another sermon on heaven again. I take by faith what God's Word says. Hell's going to be more terrible than we can understand with anything we can relate to it in this life. And heaven is going to be more wonderful than anything we can comprehend. I have the ability to choose, but I can choose neither of those things. I'm a free moral agent, but I cannot choose how you'll respond to this sermon. You know, what we can do when we preach is to try to find the subjects we believe are the most important and relevant and do all that we can to try to hold your attention. But I can't affect how you'll respond. I promise you that when Nick gets up here and leads us in a song in just a moment, I'm not going to go to any of the rows and say, how about you? Do you need to respond? I'd never come back and get you. I know that would embarrass you. I'd never go that far. I have the ability to choose, but I can't choose how you'll respond. I have the ability to choose, but I can't choose the importance of this moment of invitation. But I can close with this illustration. Out beside you is a door that opens to eternity. For everybody here right now, the door beside us is closed. You can't see it, you can't feel it, neither can your neighbor sitting next to you, but it's there. And someday that door is going to open. Out beside me is a door that leads to eternity. And I know, I realize that someday I'm going to come into an assembly, maybe I hope, here at Lehman Avenue. And I'm going to sit... Stand, whatever part I play in that service. I'm going to worship, sing songs of praise to God. I'm going to pray. I'm going to observe the Lord's Supper. Give of my means. We'll either preach or we'll hear a message from God's Word. We'll be dismissed. And I'll walk out of this assembly. And before I meet with the saints again, that door for me will open into eternity.
One of these days, you're going to come into an assembly. And you're going to sing and pray, commemorate our Lord, give of your means, and hear God's word proclaimed. And when you leave that service, the door will open for you. The question this morning is, if you're not ready for that door to be open, realize that while those that we said goodbye to this past weekend, one was 94, one was 85, and one was 59, that we don't have an expiration date that's placed upon us that says exactly when our time will come to an end. Our friends and fellow citizens in the state of Hawaii did not realize how quickly life would change for them. And the door to eternity opened for no doubt well over a hundred of them. In light of the great love of our Lord, if you're not ready for that door to open, you have this wonderful moment of opportunity with those who love and care about you, who want to rally around you. And you have the heart of a loving God who wants everybody not only to glimpse that view, but to have that home. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, He wants nobody to have to go through that door. But if you're not ready, we're going to sing this song to encourage you. If you need to publicly respond, to become a Christian, or to be restored, it would be our honor to help you. If this is your invitation, won't you come as we stand and sing?